I'm Jeff Hausmans. I'm director of the Centre for Citizenship, Identity and Governance. So I'm glad to see you at this very sunny morning at our forum, which uh, is co-organised uh, by our Publics Research Programme and the Enactments Research Programme around questions of public engagement within and beyond, well, collaborations and critique within and beyond the university. Uh, it looks like a very exciting program, so I'm not going to take up too much time. As usual, I wanted to briefly make a few, not announcements, but share some of the good news uh, within CSIC. I can't go through everything that has happened in the last three months since we had our previous forum. You can check that out on our website. Neither can I actually mention all the forthcoming events, which you'll have to check out again at the website, because somehow spring-summer is the high season uh, for seasick activities. So it's one after the other. Uh, and there's some very exciting ones, some organized by specific research programs, some across research programs. But I wanted to mention one specifically. It's a new initiative that's going to start <coughs> next month, which is uh, we've organized a new CSIC lecture series in which we, which we call Being on the Line, in which uh, people from within CSIC will reflect on issue, issues of citizenship, identities, and governance in contemporary conditions, particularly in relation to crisis, uh, austerity, anxiety, uh, being in situations that are not actually very clear cut how to go on and how to make what kind of decisions. And so bring our interdisciplinary research to bear on these questions. It opens with John Clark who will, on the 21st of May. These will not be held here but in the OU's Camden Centre uh, in London. So that's the first one, and that one will be followed in June, 25th of June, by Paul Stenner, uh, who will do Living on the Line, and John will reflect on governing uh, the social in an age of austerity. Part of that lecture series is not just that we will talk, but we also bring in two external people who are actually specialists in that field to comment on, and on the lecture, but on the general team as well. And so it's a way for CSIC to bring its reflecting, its contributions uh, to the current condition uh, to a wider public, but specifically also to a wider academic public, because one of the issues is also that what does it mean to do social science in times of crisis, austerity, liminality, whatever we call them, but these kind of uncertain situations. And so it's not just about kind of a vernacular kind of reflection on crisis. It's much more also trying to see whether there are new developed, new, whether we need new concepts, new methods, how far concepts, traditional concepts in social sciences carry us in trying to understand what's going on. So that's a very initiative I'm very excited about. Uh, there's many more going on which you can find on the website. A few other uh, news we have. Our newsletter will be out, a quarterly newsletter tomorrow. will be sent out tomorrow. Uh, but some of the highlights are, at least I would like to congratulate Rose Capdeville, who is now co-editor of Feminism and Psychology. 
So a new journal coming, well, the editorship of, or the co-editorship of another journal coming to CSIG. Uh, at some point we'll list them on the website. There is quite a big range of journals that are edited within the center now. And they cut across and really reflect the interdisciplinary kind of approach to social sciences. Umut Errol, I want to congratulate her as well. She is now sharing the Commission on Ethnic Diversity in Milton Keynes. Then the ENACT project, which was one a European funded project on enacting European citizenship, looking at kind of ignored, neglected citizenship dynamics in the European Union, uh, was picked as one of seven impact success stories uh, by the Net for Society, the coordination body for individual member countries' applications to the social science and humanities. So that was a that was very interesting as well. The project has finished, but the new book is coming out any time now. Well, the, the edited book, which brings together, somehow it's the statement, the academic statement of that project, is coming out any time now, meaning in the next few weeks, if I'm right. Uh, and also one of our other flagship projects, Enduring <coughs> Love, uh, had this interim report published, uh, which you can actually browse and find to our website. So that's a few. We also have a few new projects starting soon. Daniel Conway has an ESRC Knowledge Exchange Grant where he explores British diaspora histories, lives and identities of the British abroad. And that will be undertaken in collaboration with the Migration Museum project. So congratulations to Daniel. John Dixon has two grants. One from the UK India Research and Education Initiative to foster new research links between the UK and India. And another one, a British Academy small grant to fund uh, some research in uh, Peter Martisburg in South Africa on the topic divide and rule, unite and resist, effects of intergroup contact on the political solidarity of historically disadvantaged groups. And finally, Umut Arel won an award from the AHRC, a network grant that will specifically address migrant mothers and the question of how migrants' mothers' cultural and caring works enables their children to occupy a place in the future as citizens of the societies in which directly resident live and are born and are resident. So congratulations to them. Very exciting. And we'll, of course, bring results of these projects through our forums and other events in the future. <coughs> I think that's all I wanted to say. Uh, regarding CSIG more generally about things that happened in the last three months. And what I'll do is I'll share the first panel, but I'll first hand over to Nick and Hilde to actually introduce the day on public engagement. Thanks. Thanks, Jed. Yeah, welcome from uh, the Creating Public Project and the Enactments Research Programme. Kate and Karima here from the Enactments Karima from the Enactments Research Project. Um, just wanted to say a couple of words about the, the Creating Public project in case you didn't know what it was and also to welcome people who are not from CSIG. <laughs> I won't start singing at this point. Um, welcome people who are not from CSIG um, and from other institutions. Hi there. <laughs> um, Creating Public's project is the starting point for this project. It's come out of the work in the Publics Research Programme in CSIG, which has been going on for a while now. And the Creating Publics project has sp spun out of that, and it has a specific focus on 
public engagement in the in a quite a broad sense so it's interest is in the multiplication and proliferation of demands for public engagement um, coming from institutions coming from colleagues coming from new technologies coming from different places and what and at the same time as that proliferation of demands is, has come more and more into into our interview we have a much much more debate as well around what publics are what the public in public engagement is could be should be and the project looks at public engagement therefore as a sort of site of contestation one of many sites of contestation around what this what the public is and could be um, and, we've, and we've set up this day because we think there's many kinds of debates that are going on around this area which not necessarily are brought into relation to each other and we, we wanted to create a space to do that. I'm going to hand over um, to Hilda to say a little bit more about the day. Thanks, Nick. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Hilda Stefansson. I'm a research associate here at the OU. Um, I work on two related projects. One is called Catalyst, which is a university-wide project about that seeks to embed public engagement within the univer Open University and also research that process. And then I work with Nick um, on the Creating Publics project, which then feeds into this Catalyst project. Um, and just really to follow up, really, um, on our motivation for this day, um, I think it sort of comes out of a, a recognition, really, that there are two sort of sets of quite related debates going on at the moment. One about the role and status and purpose of what we might call the public university. And on the other hand, debates around um, public engagement, what is public engagement, how might we do public engagement in, in critical and collaborative ways. And so what we really wanted to do with this day is to kind of try and bring these two debates together and have a discussion around the various kinds of um, processes, practices and concepts that might be involved in, in talking about the public university and also talking about public engagement. Um, and not just in the sense of thinking and talking about these, but also what is involved in trying to enact public engagement um, in practice. So we brought together um, a really, really interesting um, group of people to speak. Um, and I think... Nick, will you just say a little bit about the programme? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, as you'll see, the programme's changed slightly from the one originally advertised. Les Back, unfortunately, can't make it, and he sends his apologies. He wanted to be here, but hopefully we'll get him another time. We've got two, the days of two halves. So the first half is about the first of the two themes that Hilda just mentioned, the public in the public university, broadly speaking. And the second half is more about the public in public engagement. So the idea for the day, as Hilda said, is to create a space where we can have conversations about these issues, but between them as well. Um, just one practical issue is we're filming this event and not least because there's quite a few people who have been in touch saying they would like to come and they couldn't make it and we also we want to create an archive of different um, of different contributions to the project overall so anybody that has any objections to being filmed please make them known um, otherwise we'll be filming it and then um, oh hello and then we'll um, we'll put it on the web afterwards so um, once again welcome everyone and we'll hand over to the first panel thank okay. you and in the afternoon we're going to talk about co-production and the making of public knowledge. I'm not going to say much, I'm going to just let the speakers speak each for about 20 minutes 
I think, and that should give us sufficient time to start the discussion. If the discussion, if we have more to discuss, always there is always, as usually on the forum, we keep about 45 minutes at the end of the day to pick up the number of issues that were raised. So, you, so we can always come back to questions at the end of the day. I'm really happy to welcome Rebecca Bolden and uh, Joel Lazarus. I propose we do the order of the program. So Rebecca will start. She is from the University of Ruhampton <coughs> and of us come to introduce ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think that's most straightforward. She will talk about rethinking an open university, embedding the academy in a social economy. Thanks, okay, thank, thank you very much. Um, <coughs> yes, very. I, I have to confess I am a, a professor of critical management. I work in a business school. I like to rearrange my job title into Professor Critical of Management. Um, I'm, uh, I'm also an accountant, this is confession time. But um, I, for, the, for the last 12 years, really, I've become increasingly fascinated with the way in which universities work and increasingly appalled and concerned about it. And um, it, it's my interest in it emerges because my, I wasn't always an accountant. I wasn't always an accountant. Um, I actually did my PhD in science and technology studies. And as I've moved into looking at management and accounting issues, I've become increasingly interested in the way in which regimes of accounting and financial and management control impact on sites of knowledge production and creativity. So my, my work has sort of extended, really, and is now almost exclusively on higher education. I have a, a big gang of friends who I work with on this and, and what I'm going to give you today is a very brief overview of the sorts of stuff that we do but I should mention that they are Maria Nedeva at the Institute of Innovation Research at University of Manchester, Penny Ciancanelli from University of Glasgow who's a critical finance person, David Greenwood, a very eminent anthropology professor from Cornell. Uh, Sue Wright, who I know some of you know, who's a, a policy anthropologist, anthropologist of policy at the Danish School of Education, Aarhus University, which confusingly is in Copenhagen. And uh, Debbie Epstein, who's a professor of sociology of education at Cardiff University. So that's our gang. Um, Sue and I have just considerably extended that gang because we have a very large, I think it's 4.5 million euro project which has just begun from, uh, from the EU called, called UNIQUE, that's Universities in the Knowledge Economy, it's the Danish spelling of UNIQUE. Um, and Denmark features quite a lot in this. And uh, we're very happy about this because we're all getting quite old and what Unique has let us do is recruit 12 PhD students and three postdoctoral students in six universities across five countries. And we have something like 15 associated partners as well all the way around the world. And we will spend the next four years developing the next cohort of students looking at these kind of issues and we can all then retire happily. What I want to, to talk about today is less about the engagement that universities do and more about how they're organised, managed and controlled in such a way that they either do or don't 
promote and sustain that kind of engagement. Because I've not got much time, I'm going to gloss over the fact that universities are increasingly managerialist spaces um, that are directed towards profit, marketisation, and becoming corporatised entities. Please put your hand up if you disagree with that, and we can talk about it afterwards, but I'm, I'll, I'll just take that as given. Okay. Um, now, it's also kind of fairly interesting, I think, that, that some, particularly in the government, both this government and its predecessors, right the way back to, to Margaret Thatcher's governments, see this as advantageous. <coughs> they like the idea that universities become aligned with the private economy because they see universities as important sites of knowledge extraction that will then support private profit-making and profitability, that our students will become suitable kind of docile bodies to enter the workforce, hence employability, and, and we will therefore aid economic growth. Um, and, and this is the point which I often get into trouble uh, when I'm talking at less amenable places than this because people say, well, what's wrong with students having jobs and what's wrong with universities aiding economic prosperity because we all need to make money and we all need our salaries paid. Um, and uh, it's absolutely nothing at all, but I think those discourses <coughs> of universities being useful, universities being important things that do provide knowledge that's really useful, that do give young people, and these days not, not, not quite so young people, better, better life opportunities, is, is of course vitally important. It's a discourse that's been captured a lot by neoliberal policy advocates who think that that should be the be-all and end-all. So my, my beef with all of this is that what's happened to universities in the course of this transition is that they've moved away from being socially embedded and oriented. They've moved away from being engaged socially and in their communities to being financially oriented, orientated. And they've become financialised institutions. And, and that's quite an important shift. So in a sense, I see in the worst case scenarios, universities as having shifted their ethos in quite a fundamental way. So they've become obsessed with their bottom line, making money, corporatisation, serving the knowledge economy in terms of aligning themselves with private industry. And if you look at things like, you know, the in, I'm busy writing my school's impact case studies at the moment, so um, and I would point you to impact <coughs> and ref as a prime example of how we are supposed to service a very particular sector of a very private economy. What do we lose with that? What, what I've argued with others elsewhere is that we lose our academic freedom and, and that's important not just because it makes our lives more miserable and less creative but it also quite seriously undermines democracy and the knowledge base of society. We get a narrowing of focus of the sorts of knowledges that we produce and indeed what we teach students. There's been nice debates in, uh, in, the, in the Times Higher in recent weeks about some, some history lecturer who was suddenly made to not teach his students about the Civil War or something, but, but about how to write a CV. 
is a nice indication of the, the narrowing of the sort of knowledge that we give to students. And fundamentally, I think what we lose is a sense of service to students and surrounding society. And, and it's quite an old-fashioned word, service, but I think it's quite an important one. And I think it's one we need to go back to, or possibly go forward to. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that elitist universities of the past or even the present were particularly focused on helping and serving the needs of the people who paid their salaries. Uh, I constantly remind my colleagues that people who shovel chips in McDonald's pay our salaries and still do pay our salaries. And that at the heart of engagement and being a social committed university is a sense of commitment and obligation to those communities, which <coughs> I think was significantly missing in the past. Not everywhere. Okay, my work on this, because I'm an accountant and a management professor, centres on issues of governance, ownership and control. And, and the starting point of our analysis is, the, is, is, is that of a corporation in terms of governance. And, and in work I did with, with Sue Wright and Penny Ciaccinelli, we went back to Adam Smith's notion of the, of the prudent entrepreneur. But if you control and own an organisation, you're very careful with it because it's your money and you look after it. And what happened in corporate development, uh, as a sort of governance at a fast pace, was that throughout the 19th century you got the emergence of joint stock companies, which separated ownership and control. So you had to own the shares in a company, and then you had the managers who were the agents who went about actually kind of running the organisation. And that creates the heart of the governance dilemma. How do people who own an organisation make sure that the people who are controlling it on a day-to-day -day basis are acting in their interests? There's plagued management schools for, for a long time since. And, and these problems were first identified in 1932 by two chaps called Berlin Means. And, and that separation, that, that failure even in the corporate sector to resolve that problem of separation between ownership and control is evident to everybody in the last five years since the financial crisis started. So the fact that bankers can walk away with exceedingly large golden goodbyes and pensions whilst we, the shareholders in their banks now, pay for that is evidence of that problem of the separation of ownership and control and how do you control the people who run organisations. So that's a sort of context. Let me turn to universities. And anyone here tell me who owns the university you work in? I've asked this question around the world I asked it in Cape Town actually and a kind of group of comrades at the back got really agitated they started like shaking their fish who owns Cape Town University I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know they were, like, you know, they were demanding it was theirs it's, it's not us it's, 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 it's incredibly difficult they're kind of they're what the Danes call self-owning organisations charity so it's not owned by anyone exactly yeah and the Danes call it self-owning organisations um, so that's, that's, that's the Danish kind of legal term for it, self-owned organisations. And it's kind of difficult because there is no clear group of owners. 
And up until about 25 years ago, that didn't really matter because we were, albeit elitist, sexist, etc., communities, we were self-governing communities, which meant that we didn't really, ownership was fuzzy, but it didn't really matter because the academic community controlled what happened inside the university to a significant extent. And then from the Jarrett Report, the Higher Education Act 1988, etc. onwards, so really starting with, with Mrs. Thatcher when she really started <coughs> getting stuck in with her handbag on universities, you got an undermining of that academic self-governance and you got the emergence of a significant managerial elite in, in UK universities. Does anybody have an idea about what proportion of UK university staff are managers and administrators now? More than half. Absolutely. Around about 52%. Just quite shocking. I, I tell people I know in accounting institutes that it's more than 52% and they, they, they are gobsmacked, I think is, is, is the best way of putting it. And not only have, and this has happened, I mean, David and Sue and I have traced this kind of in many countries. It's not just the UK. In Finland, they call this the English disease, which is interesting. And, and, and not only are they increasing numbers, they're also increased in, in their pay quite dramatically. We've got wonderful figures of the growth of administrator salaries in Denmark. And it, it's, it's quite stupendous. So these people have become a huge core in the university, consuming large amounts of the resources. And so we've got a group of managers suddenly, a bit like corporations, but we haven't got any owners who control their behaviour because the students don't do it. We tell them they're customers and they have choice, which of course means they've got no choice and they can't do anything. We don't control the managers because we're now employees, etc., etc. Uh, the government don't really directly control them. So they're a kind of self-governing elite inside the universities, almost a bit, bit like the bankers, and sometimes almost as well paid. And and that creates a bit of a of a of a moral hazard because how do we know the managers are going to act in the interests of the university? Um, and actually, if you look at a lot of the salary data, universities are. Um, Increasingly, kind of like the, the managers are paying themselves huge amounts of money. So ownership's vague, managers are in control, and managers kind of, a lot of the work I've done, things like journal rankings lists and so on, tend to indicate that managers quite like to align themselves with government policies because by making themselves popular and the handmaiden <coughs> of government policies, they're achieving kind of control and direction inside universities. Everybody's very happy that they carry on getting very large amounts of money. My, my own PhD supervisor ended up as, as the University of Reading's Vice-Chancellor. And, and he told me how, kind of like, early 1990s he went there. And, and he was talking about a kind of deliberate government policy at that time to ratchet up the Vice-Chancellor's pay. Because what <coughs> they wanted to do was create an extraordinarily well-paid elite in universities, so the vice chancellors saw the governments as their friends rather than 
the academic colleagues they came from. So, this is the sort of mechanism, this is the governance failure by which universities come to align themselves with these neoliberal government objectives of universities serving private economic needs. And what I've argued with others is the way you unpick that is by looking at the ownership and control structure of universities. And I think this is the most important thing because it really requires that kind of like basic fundamental transformation in ownership and control. And, and we've got two models that we're playing with and we'll be playing with them a lot more in the, um, in, in the unique project. One of them is the notion that we could have the John Lewis University. I like John Lewis. John Lewis is, is an amazing organisation. I not only like shopping there, I just think it's really interesting that an organisation which in its trustees never mentions the word profit is the most profitable retailer in the UK. So if you know John Lewis is, 1929 John Spedden Lewis, the son of the chap who set John Lewis up, had a kind of moment of revelation while he was in hospital with TB and uh, decided that he would invest <coughs> all of the shares of his company in a non-revocable trust, the beneficiaries of which were the partners, the employees of John Lewis. So he did it. So currently John Lewis, structured like a regular company, has shares, the trust owns those shares, Every year, the dividends from the shares get paid up into the trust, the beneficiaries of the trust are the employees. That's why you see it on the news every year, they get that lovely salary bonus every year. That's their share of the profit. So it's an employee benefit organisation. And, and the purpose of John Lewis is stated, first ask if it's trustees, the purpose of John Lewis is to provide meaningful employment to, to the partners nothing about profit. So we quite like the idea of universities being placed in these non-revocable trusts, not least because it might um, deter the government from actually selling them um, and, and, and deter that kind of shift into private ownership that's now becoming evident with a lot of kind of smaller colleges and so on in the UK. Um, and we, we, we kind of played around with the idea that that trustee might say that universities should be committed to socially, culturally and economically beneficial scholarship through the work of all employees and students, whether in research, teaching, learning or public debate. And in our model for the trust university, all members of staff and all students <coughs> would be partners in that university. Students would be transient partners, the, 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 the academics and the other people would be permanent partners. Accountability then becomes, once you've, once you've tied it up in the trust that the purpose of the university is this socially beneficial work, you've then got to kind of actualise that through, um, through some, sort of system, some kind of engagement with the public. And that's kind of like more difficult because what is society, what's surrounding society is a kind of slippery concept, isn't it? Yeah. Who, who are the people you want to engage with um, and, and we're kind of really interested in, in that I and mean, David Greenwood in Cornell is a great advocate of a thing called the search conference which is using kind of anthropologist skills to go out into communities 
and, and find what he calls the missing voices and, and organise things and articulate things and actually kind of like get the university working together with its outside kind of contributors. And actually it's interesting, Leighton Andrews, the Minister for Education in Wales, is attempting through his university reform programme to do just that. He wants a sort of a, a supreme governing council for universities in Wales, which would include a lot of social actors. Um, and at Mondragon University, which is a cooperative university in Spain, I can tell you a bit about in the discussion, um, he, 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 they, they have fantastic systems where members of the, of the university cooperative are also people who, who are running the, the other cooperatives in the Mondragon region, people who own businesses. So they have industrial participants in the university. So our argument is by, by shifting the status of the university either into something like John Lewis or something like the Mondragon cooperatives, you could actually make surrounding society part of your community, part of the organisation, and, and the university just becomes a vehicle for that sort of enactment, but you need to do that in a very kind of specific, structured, legal, formal way. And, and just finally, of course, you know, universities within that would obviously become, like John Lewis or like the Mondragon Cooperative, <coughs> they would effectively become self-governing communities again. So just in the same way that John Lewis is run by shop floor committees and hierarchies of committees and very sophisticated kind of industrial democracy in the same way as at Mondragon where the academics are all by their way into the co-op that is their faculty and spend a lot of time discussing it then we would again become the people who would have that sense of purpose and sense of power and control but that would be underpinned by a very very serious and very well articulated sense of engagement and service to our communities Okay. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. I should hold your questions, Mr. Tugango, but I'm sure there will be several on this provocation, which is very interesting. It might not be so provocative in this environment, but uh, I can imagine other environments where it's highly provocative. Yeah. <laughs> sure, but I think it's, it's got some different ways, so I think there will be some very interesting questions. But let's first go to Joe who brings, if I can see from the title, another dimension Whoa. to the public university, which is about an analysis of the recent flourishing of critical education initiatives in the UK. Critical education at the heart of social transformation, which is... Yeah, that was the task of that initiative. I think that what I'm going to talk about today is that, and I'm really going to try consciously, having heard what Rebecca is saying, and being in a sense of what's coming, try to link the two. And... Um, I want to talk about a specific project. I'm going to, what I'm going to talk about is the very real things that we're actually trying to do, and I think that's what we're doing. Um, it's you know, a bit of, obviously, because you know, practice reflecting on that, reflecting on that. But, um, uh, yeah, so I'm going to kind of link up, oh, link, link from Rebecca by saying that uh, Rebecca's been talking about reforming the university. Um, from, from, from within, fundamentally, uh, structurally. Um, but from my experience, many people working in universities have just hit just the breaking point and have not given up on uh, seeking to reform the university from within, but can't wait to try 
to try and create the kind of, of uh, learning environments, the kind of um, higher education uh, um, um, forms and, and practices and institutions and spaces that they want to see and create. So what happened was that uh, they, I've, I, re I noticed about 18 months, two years ago, that all of these people around the country would been, had set up kind of independently of each other things called free universities and this interests me a great deal and um, I should say I myself, I finished my PhD about 18 months ago at, at Oxford University, I am a precariat, you know uh, <laughs> academic, I, I teach at Oxford, I teach at last term is crazy, I've reading two modules at SOAS right, for no money um, and so I got interested, so I set up something called the free university network which brought these people together um, um, to try to learn from each other, support, share experiences, etc. And found it very, very interesting. Um, just a few reflections about that. Well, that culminated so far in uh, a conference in, uh, held in Oxford in the community centre in December where 40 people came from all around the country. And it was really, really uh, productive. And I think the goal for me this summer is to create actually a broader, we're calling a free education network. Um, because not everything is involved around, revolved around higher education and there are so many people doing so many exciting and promising uh, uh, things broadly in the area of democratic, critical, radical whatever you call it, participatory free education I just want to say something about free uh, when I'm talking about free I'm thinking, I'm thinking three things and, and I, think, I think the people involved in this would agree with me free means debt free um, it means it doesn't, uh, so for example like uh, one of the more advanced uh, examples of this is the Social Science Centre in Lincoln who asked for uh, a nominal kind of an hour, uh, the equivalent of an hour's wage for people who can afford that but if they can contribute more, great if they can't uh, intellectually free, of course um, and uh, also kind of like an act of subversion really because obviously the government are talking about free schools so um, you know, if uh, if they want to create uh, free schools, then we'll, we'll, we'll create our version of the free school. You know, so. um, that's what I was talking about um, in terms of free. But what I want to... Oh, it's been locked. Right. How do I... Uh, oh, okay. What I want to uh, talk about uh, now is uh, an, a, a project that four people... Uh, who, who, who are, have backgrounds in academia and activism uh, coming together to create um, uh, last summer and, and I want to talk about, about this and, and, um, so this is, this is us I suppose um, so it's called PPE which uh, <laughs> is I'm very proud of that I thought that so people's political economy and obviously a direct challenge to you know the elite flagship that produces our prime ministers and world leaders all over the world. Now. So, you know, for us, I mean, I'm in, you know, in Oxford, this is, you know, for a thousand years, I mean, Rebecca used the word serve and service, and I just couldn't agree more because for a thousand years, give or take, uh, the town of Oxford has been serving the gown, right? So, in our own humble way, this is about us coming out and going, we want to serve and work with and enact or engage with the people of Oxford. So, uh, what I'm going to do very, very briefly then is just talk about our, us and our approach 
we piloted a project um, in, uh, in the autumn, and we're going <coughs> to talk about how that went and reflect on that, and then um, offer some, tell you what, what we're planning now, and, uh, and reflect on, on what I think this means in, in terms of what we're discussing today. So, um, yeah, there's, there's four of us set it up, and there's seven of us now, um, and we have this board of advisors who haven't actually had it big role as yet, but we're hoping to, to develop that. But this, first of all, it's a, it's a response, and again, it's, as Rebecca was talking about, this is a response to a serious crisis within the university that's prompted us personally to, to do this, but also, broadly, you know, we're facing an economic crisis, a political crisis, an ecological crisis, and the crisis of our collective imagination to imagine alternatives and, and live and be and do those alternatives. And what we're doing actually is, as I've learned more and more, is, is new, but it's so, it's old. You know, we're trying to revive an amazing, rich tradition of this kind of education in Oxford in particular, right back to Russian College and the Pledge League. And, you know, so you know, we're conscious of that. So what have we done? So what we did was we set up uh, learning groups about political economy. What is this crisis and what can we do about it, basically, you know. Um, and we, um, okay, so, uh, and what we're trying to do is help them develop the tools they need to understand the political economy of their lives. Um, perhaps develop their, as Steve Rock Mills put it, their sociological imagination, yeah, to understand their biography in the context of their own history uh, in certain society. And we're trying to do this really through democratic critical education. So, you know, that's critical education at the heart of social transformation. So what does, what does that mean? So democratic, non-hierarchical, participatory, I'm really inspired by in particular the work of Paolo Freire um, and trying to break down those you know, hierarchical relationships of, uh, of teacher and student, and we call them facilitators. Are. That doesn't mean that we don't recognise the superior, superior or greater knowledge. And, you know, the, the facilitator needs to be able to take the student or the participant, <coughs> but um, you know that that's really important. You know, creating a, a really you know a warm and, and safe learning environment. But critical. What does critical mean? Well, for me and uh, for us, what is crucial is that all ideological perspectives are covered. You know, I'm, you know, very very inspired by critical theories, Marxism, feminism, but um, I'm not going to. Uh, if you ask me what I think, I'm going to tell you what I think. But the goal is to cover the whole thing, help people develop their own critical, uh, uh, give them the knowledge and give them the critical uh, abilities to, 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 to understand and scrutinise that. Um, and then there's this notion of, of um, <coughs> you know, bringing th thought and action together, ideas and action together that we, we believe, we believe, and we still believe enough to the public that you know, our, these, these actions will lead to transformation on an individual and a collective basis. So, this, uh, what we did in the, in the pilot phase, we did, there were two, two phases, the preparation phase and then the actual um, group, groups. So what we did was, we needed to secure the supply and demand, right? So we needed, in economic uh, terms, we needed to get the, the supply, the facilitators to, to run these groups and the, the community organisations to partner us and work with us and participate in these groups. So um, we tried to, in the end, we relied on our personal networks many of graduate students to, to become facilitators. And then we, um, we set up learning groups in these five, uh, five uh, organisations. So Crisis, uh, which I presume you know, Homeless Charity Restore, Mental Health Organisation, 
Donington Doorstep, which is a, a family centre for parents of young children, uh, 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 Positive Futures, a, a youth scheme run by the Oxford Council, and a high school. And we had a, gra- a, gra- student, uh, a group of graduate students at Prunas with Cows, which is the Department of International Development. So before that, we, before we started, we, we did a two-day training uh, thing uh, focused on both uh, critical pedagogy, uh, you know, critical teaching uh, practices and, and, philo- and, and theories, philosophy, um, uh, and also, uh, well, yeah, that was actually the main focus. Um, and then we had this um, kind of tension uh, that we needed to kind of negotiate between kind of being prescriptive, because we, you know, we did know and, and believe that if you want to uh, understand political economy, you do need to know some stuff, right? You need to know what is subprime mortgage or, you know, quantitative easing or stuff like this. So there's an element of prescription there. At the same time, a commitment to democracy means a commitment to the groups, t- you know, sh- driving and, and um, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, directing their own learning processes. So, so what we did was actually, no, oh no, I forgot to um, put them in, but I can show you on the website, I'll give you the website later, but Basically, um, what we tried to do was an overarching syllabus. If you imagine three um, uh, uh, interarching, uh, like a Venn diagram of three circles, one is, uh, they're all crisis, basically, economy, politics, and imagination. And each of these uh, main headings has a kind of three subheadings, so politics, media, neoliberalism, uh, democracy, uh, you know, uh, economics would be uh, capitalism, consumption, debt, finance, whatever. And each one of those, we, we prescribe one Uh, But actually, in the end, it wasn't actually used very much, and the facilitators kind of developed their own own things. And instead, what we're doing now is building a repository of kind of teaching materials, both in terms of aids to teach political economy and also kind of teaching teaching materials, uh, kind of pedagogy. And I think for sake of time, basically, I'm in the the final throes of producing a report on this, so I'm I'm very, very glad to disseminate this very soon. You can read the actual details of the, each group's experiences. Um, apart from Donington Doorstep, which is the, the, parent, the family one, which I, I was personally concerned, couldn't, couldn't get it set up. I think uh, we've learned, we learned that, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But uh, apart from that, we've had either really encouraging um, results or really quite amazing results. And so, on the sake of time, I'll talk about the amazing ones. Um, not there's some confirmation bias there. But no, I, um, you know, uh, for us, though, the, outs- the standout one was the youth group run by the city council, which is still running every Sunday. Young people, not, not a huge number, six or seven regular people coming uh, every Sunday, three, four hours. <coughs> and um, the, the highlight there was that the council arranged uh, a discussion with some two local MPs. And I didn't go, but I was told that basically these young people <laughs> and they didn't do it in an aggressive way. They did it in, well, actually, what you're saying with respect is factually incorrect, and let me tell you. And, you know, uh, you know actually, that's a logical fall- uh, you know, fallacy, this kind of stuff. Um, but there are other, other experiences, and some of, them, you know, some of them really anecdotal. And I was talking about, you know, trans- social transformation. Now, to some, this would, you know, dismiss this, but I'll give you some other examples. Two people at crisis. You know, who are really vulnerable people, right? They've never written anything in their lives, produced an article on the political economy for the crisis newsletter. Um, people in the restore suffering from mental health problems, um, 
Firstly, just feeling, first feeling comfortable in the space. Secondly, feeling like they had a right to an opinion to talk about these things. One person saying how they came home uh, and talked about their brother who works in a bank about the crisis, and like they'd never done that before. Now, some people might dismiss that. To me, I think you know, I think that power runs through society, through all sorts of social relations, and over the dining, dining table, to me, is is, a, is significant. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll go through. Uh, I'll go through this. Um, what I'm going to do is just talk about in the last uh, five ten minutes. So I'll, just, I'll talk about um, what how what we what we're thinking about this and where, we, where we're going to go. So um, I think there's there's some challenges. There's challenges with uh, we found that having a key person within the, the organisation with whom we're working is absolutely central to to our success. I think it's difficult when pe- we're working people with people in precarious circumstances, vulnerable circumstances, troubled circumstances to get that regular thing. But there's never, you know, and at the same time, you know, all of our organisation partners want us to continue. All of the participants, you know, want us to continue. Some of the participants in the group want to set up their own groups and we're going to help them with training and support to do that. Um, and um, so overall, you know, we think this is working. This is a way of, you know, I'm looking to just enacting in public engagement, and I think it's exactly what we're doing within and beyond the university. So I think I'm in the right room. Um, <laughs> you know, and so people want to learn. So two things. People want to learn about this economy of their lives. They want to understand the world around them and not to see it as a just random events that just knock them from side to side. And at the same time, people really enjoyed and res- appreciated and respected um, our, uh, our, our approach, our democratic, critical approach. Um, so, you know, transformative power, well, I'm not interested in my own research anyway in kind of crude causality, uh, you know, all dialectics these days. And um, I think um, at the same time, I've kind of shared a few anecdotes and things which really, you know, it, it heartened me. Um, but the main, the main focus is just giving people the tools, giving them the knowledge and giving them the critical faculties to understand their own world because they can do it themselves. You know. um, so in that sense, I still, you know, I absolutely believe, and it's not just about me believing in that because of some, you know, one-off pilot. You know, there's a rich, rich history of this kind of education, transforming the individual, transforming the community, and transforming societies. So the lessons for us is uh, we're going to really develop our training uh, and that's one big thing. Um, recruiting facilitators. This week actually, first starting from tonight, <coughs> loads of talks just telling the whole broader Oxford academic community so Ox- uh, in Oxford so at the university, also Brooks in Ruskin trying to get people involved on board. Um, and yeah, demographics. So we've fo- we've realised that you know uh, we're going to focus on young people and unemployed people because they have the time and they have the inclination. They're used to going on courses. Not many of them are that particularly great, but hopefully ours will be. Working as I can, I can attest, you know, parents with young children don't have a great deal of time. You know. So um, uh, thinking, uh, well, uh, this. Um, issue of language has been really, really interesting to me, and um, how to attract people, how to attract people, um, 
It's been really, it's been really interesting using the P word. I thought, you know, politics sometimes just gets such a blank response. You're trying to engage with people, um, and and about our own identity, we started off calling ourselves one thing. We we've had, a, you know, we had. It's just been a really humbling experience and learning about language, uh, because you know, at the same time, a lot of what we're trying to do is demystify a lot of the a lot of the language that's used to, you know confuse and obfuscate and shroud in mystery and, and, and confusion. So language has been has been really key. Um, sorry, I've not been very articulate or open on that language issue. But um, it's been something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll finish them with, our, with our, the future plans, which is basically, as I say, this week and next week, in fact, we're going to tell our wider academic community about what we're doing. Um, and then I think in the summer it's a big event for me, I've got it in my head out how to tell Oxford about what we're doing. Um, demand for me is not a problem in terms of getting new groups. I think when we get, we're building connections. We're really excited. Uh, what we've, uh, what is the a key goal for us is to institutionalise. The four people who have set this up are leaving the country uh, over the next uh, 12 months. I know I'm going for a year. I'll be back. But um, so we've got three more into the organising committee. A key thing is working now in going into the Oxford hub, which is a hub for student-run projects that have got a good institutional framework to go into. Um, I'll, I'll let these, these speak from the start, I'm running out of time, about, about how we plan to institutionalise this. So it's not about an individual, uh, his own gargantuan efforts, but it actually becomes part of, uh, uh, of a cycle and part of uh, it becomes an institution. Um, and then we're also we're starting to talk to uh, other hubs at SOAS and at Imperial College in London about sending this up. We've done this with no money, pretty much. Apart from we got 500 quid to do the initial training. That's it. Uh, and I think that that's great. And that's, uh, we are applying for a bit of money to do more training. Apart from that, it's been with no money. So, you know, these are the key tests to try, and to, try to, um, uh, to institutionalize something. You know. And then finally... Um, yeah... Uh, you know, for me, this is a political project. This is totally political, and um, this is a prefigurative one. What I'm trying to do is, you know, bury Thatcherism by saying there is an alternative, and we're creating this alternative. We are living this alternative. We're embodying this alternative. This is it, you know. Um, and so, what I'm interested in now is creating space within the centre of Oxford and bringing all the people who and all the projects who do amazing things in the areas of ecology, food, uh, education and bring it in and try to create a sense where people can come and feed their mind, their body, and dare I say their soul, and, uh, and try to create <coughs> some kind of uh, thing. And really, you know, and as an academic, I think really, you know, try to serve, try to serve, uh, to serve the community. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Thank you. That leaves us plenty of time for discussion. I'll focus on moving the microphone on time, hopefully, and picking up your questions. I thought it was very interesting because there are two different kinds of takes on public university, but also how you engage through teaching, but actually as a no, how to organizing knowledge, not knowledge exchange, because that's become something quite technical, but as a knowledge organization, how you engage publics so it's not like public engagement. It's actually how do you engage publics that you actually make in the moment 
of basically organizing your knowledge transfer, exchange, whatever, there must be different terms for this one. But it also is an engaging of and a revisiting of what it means to be public and to have public knowledge and how do you organize public knowledge. So I think the two talks actually are quite interesting and give a lot to think about uh, on all kinds of aspects. Not least also how some of these initiatives emerge. There's a big difference of one emerging and the situation of high precarity of precarity and others emerging within already established institutions. And there are different contexts in which they're established. But uh, I think there's plenty to discuss around the main team, around the specifics and the politics involved. So on that note, I'd like to open for questions, remarks, comments. I'm probably one of the few people in here that's not from a university. Is that working? Can you hear me? Yeah. My name's Helen Price. Um, I run a volunteer centre in London, and I sit at a strategic level in London um, around empowerment of communities to engage with society, make a difference in the world that they live in and also to implement change, facilitate, facilitate change in their own lives and some of that change is quite small. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in how the work um, of the Young Foundation around social and emotional competency development um, and ownership of that fits in with the work that Joel is doing because um, I believe that there is a missing layer when it comes to engaging publics um, and that is around um, in, an individual's ability to own and have the confidence to take the journey that they need to engage with some of the opportunities and I notice that you're working already with community groups, Joel, that um, work with vulnerable people. Um, but interestingly, in this emotional, uh, emotional, well, it is emotional, economic environment, more and more people, not just from traditional vulnerable communities, are finding that their emotional, the social and emotional capabilities are being challenged. And without, without developing those, uh, and that's beyond CV development, um, then how can they contribute? So... I don't know whether that's a question or a statement, but it's um, something I'd be interested in debating with you. So I, just want, I think that, um, well, I, I, I think that's a great question to come, because I'm here really to learn this, this far more than to, you know, to share what I've been doing and that. And, um, I, and I, I think that's, I'm, I, you know, I, I think I can learn much more from you on that. I, I suppose I, I'd say that what we're, our focus is on our uh, expertise, which is on speaking, which is on um, political economy, and, you know, but uh, you're absolutely right, it has an emotion. I mean, I, I don't know if this, this statistic is correct, but I read that 21% of the population are now on antidepressants. I mean, and to make that link between political economic situations and people's personal, you know, uh, emotional uh, state uh, situations I think is actually something that is important to, to so I'd like to learn more about that and maybe if there's people not to, to bring them in to that yeah. thank you oh my god oh yeah 
questions, please. This one, sorry. <laughs> Someone, yeah, sorry. No, that's okay. Let's no, go no. that way. We'll go that way. First of all, Rebecca, um, I agree with almost everything you say, but some of my comments I wouldn't like to address on camera, so I'll talk to you later. Um, I'm, I'm Duncan Banks. I, I chair the Human Research Ethics Committee, and many of you here probably would have put through applications to the Ethics Committee in the last few years. Um, my question really was around governance, ownership and control. Um, how, apart from your, your model uh, that you're proposing, is there any way we can go back to a point in time when the OU started, where many of the academics and tutors had some control over the policy and governments? Well, the... the the point of the, uh, uh, of the model really is, is, is precisely to achieve that. So the idea is that, that universities become self-governing communities. But, but in a sense, I, I kind of sharp intake of breath when you said go back, because all of this is not about going back, because you know, every, every time I send a paper off to some journal, I go, oh, she just wants to go back to the good old days. And I, don't think the good old days existed, really, for universities. I mean, they may well have done in some areas. You know, the Open University had sort of fantastic, creditable origins. Um, I think my university at Roehampton actually kind of like probably still is in the old days, you know, in the sense that it's, it's not a corporatised university in that sense. But, but we see it as moving forward to something different, which is about a... A, r a real sense of kind of ownership and control by the academics, but underpinned by a, a, a connectedness and a connectedness in, in exactly the way that Joel was talking about, you know. And, and I don't see where he and I come from as, as in any way at odds. It's just sort of either you, you do it outside the mainstream or you try and change the mainstream. I'm probably more bullheaded. I'd like to change the mainstream. But, um, and, it, and, and there are albeit very, very isolated examples of it happening. So, so Mondragon in, in Spain, I don't know if anybody knows anything about Mondragon, it's, it's the mountainous region in, in the Basque country, where in 1957 a, a rebellious communist priest called Ares Mendiareta got sent there as a punishment by Franco, and he looked around and he couldn't work out how he could help these people who were impoverished. And all there was in the town was a lock factory, and, and, but nobody bought locks because they had nothing worth nicking. And, but they didn't have any cooking stoves because of all the, the, you know, the, the, the boycott and so on of Spain. So he took a group of lads over the border into, into, into France one night. They either stole or bought a top-of-the-range oil-fired cooking stove, brought it back to the lock factory, took it apart, worked out how it worked, retooled the lock factory, started turning out stoves. Once they made enough with that enterprise... They then set up the next cooperative, and there are now, I think, 142 cooperatives in Mondragon. You go, you go to the Mondragon Valleys, it's like pre-Thatcher Britain, as people make stuff. You know, they make engine blocks for Lotus, they make buses, they make everything there. <coughs> and, and, and then these people decided they wanted a university. So, so they've, they've got three faculties, each of which are a 
co workers' cooperative. They've got a business school. They've got a, uh, which interestingly made a loss last year, so they all had a pay cut. <laughs> Ironic. They've got a business school. They've got a big engineering school, and they've got an education faculty, which specialises in providing Basque language education teachers, uh, school teachers. And then there's a cooperative of cooperatives across the top, which, unlike having 52% of your staff as managers, has, has five people in the central university. And it's like, I thought it was the vice-chancellor's bad English when he told me that it's five people. And they run themselves. And, and the thing that's interesting about those cooperatives, it's very successful, it's entirely private, it's no government money. And they work with and through the local community. So, so when the local cooperatives who supply their students and to whom they supply workers, I mean, it really is very focused on you know, providing good workers for the cooperatives. But the cooperatives are the society as well. There's no division between work and the rest of life there. Um, when they, when they, uh, they had a talk about it, they decided, well, you know, we're, we're not sure the students are getting the right sort of education at the university because they're not thinking and they're not engaged enough. So the university redesigned its entire pedagogy and has a thing called Menderberry, which is Basque for New Century. And they, they basically sort of took out all their big lecture theatres. They made small learning spaces with lots of sofas. They actively adopted this Frarian type kind of pedagogy. And the pedagogy kind of became much more embedded with, with what the university was trying to do because they realised they'd been sucked down the road of kind of mainstream education. So, and all of this is done through, through that self-governance. So it, it can actually be... I mean, you can't replicate Mondragon because it's a particular kind of creation of particular circumstances. But, but places like that prove that it can be done. People do spend a lot of time negotiating and discussing and in meetings and deciding what to do, possibly up to about 20%, 25% of their time. And I asked the Vice-Chancellor at Mondragon, is that a lot of staff time to be spending kind of sitting around deciding what you're going to do? It's typical of most co-ops that do that. He said, well, it is, he said, but when we make a decision, it's the right decision. He said, everybody agrees with it. He says, and I bet in your university, people just spend a lot of time standing around drinking coffee by the photocopier, bitching about what the management's done. And I said, well, yes, that's probably 50% of that. It's probably true of all you as well. You think that time is actually devoted to, you know, constructively running and organising the institution? Much better. Um, hmm. I, two really fascinating um, uh, takes on, on, on where higher education is going. One of the things that really struck me is that both of you are um, you're ending up with grappling with well, what sort of institutional organisational forms do we, do we need, which when uh, in the, the discussion and hopefully uh, the paper I'm going to do this afternoon, that's one of the things that I think we're grappling with, that, that, that I think we are trying to, f all of us trying to find either new ways or using old ways, you know, cooperatives are old ways, uh, and it's, it seems really Im no, important. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Um, but uh, one, there, there, were, there were a few observations. One, I, I'm, that, um, Rebecca, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm a bit worried about your um, division between 
administration and academics because I think that uh, I think you that administrators are important. We are, and, and you're, you're in grave danger, I think, of of of, of um, creating a, a hierarchy which already exists in universities between administrators and academics. And in fact, that's something that I think, rather than disparaging administration, actually there needs to be a recognition that it, that we're all part of a common project. Um, so, and I, I think in terms of the way you think about institutional forms and organizational forms it felt to me that that was uh, quite important the other thing is and it was sort of Joel's thing about we did it without any money um, again and 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 your thing about no state funding it seems to me there is a bit of a problem with that because only you, you can do it without money presumably because you and your other colleagues found other ways of of resourcing your time um, uh, you know, on the, the 1st of April this year, a whole load of uh, possibilities for people to be engaged uh, were being withdrawn as they, you know, benefit caps were introduced, uh, bedroom tax, all of these, you know. The, the, uh, so this, uh, I don't think we ought to uh, set up fantasies about doing it without money. That's not actually uh, very helpful. It's, it's, we need to think about you know, how do we channel the money into ways that are going to be engaging. Okay, uh, about the, the, uh, the money issue, I was mentioned at the start about the free university network and the conference, and that was called Sustaining Alternatives. And um, uh, I, I, I agree. I mean, the way I think about these things is kind of like within, against, beyond. And, uh, you know, we're within, within the system. Uh, you know, I'll be perfectly candid uh, with my own personal circumstances. My wife's doctor, she earns, you know, a bit, a bit more, and we, we're okay. But at the same time, I think the key thing uh, that academics or people in study do have is the amount of flexibility with their time. That basically means they work really, really hard, you know, almost all the time, but they can find an hour perhaps in the middle of the day or two hours in the middle of the day to take out and, and do this. So it's not just about the, what money you get, but it's about your the flexibility you have with your time that, that might be something that we have. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a massive issue. It's a massive issue, and uh, there are you know that the conference was really interesting. There were lots and lots of of, uh, of interesting ways uh, to get about to either to get a, a, away from money or to find money. Uh, I don't have the answers to that. I might. I'm the accountant. Um, <laughs> first of all, on the managers administrators point, let me let me. <laughs> Apologies if I wasn't absolutely clear in my language. I draw a very sharp distinction between administrators and managers. And, and administrators and technical support staff are the people who could and should be able to help academic staff supporting their work. And they are undeniably important. What's happened in universities is that at some point I, I look back to my long career in HE and I try and work <coughs> out when it happened but people who were administrators suddenly became managers. And, and I'm, I'm perhaps somebody else my age or older can sort of work out when it happened. And, and looking back and talking to people, what seems to have happened is at some point universities said to the academic body, <coughs> you don't want to be doing all of that administration work. 
we'll just have a few fewer of you and we'll take all that work away from you. You can really concentrate on your academic stuff. But what happened was that created a cadre of people who didn't see themselves as managers, uh, as, as administrators suddenly. They saw themselves as managers. <coughs> and they started ma trying to manage, they try and manage me, they don't succeed, trying to manage academics into doing the work that we already did. So there's fewer of us, and we're still doing the same admin work we used to do, in fact probably more of it, except we have a kind of management monkey on our back who is directing us and telling us and making us accountable and making us do things. And, and it's less about managers and more about managerialism. And, and I don't think there should be people called managers anywhere, really. You know? The true management isn't this kind of hierarchical structure where you've got somebody doing things. Management's about how you organise yourselves as, as, as a community and a group to do things yeah. and that, that makes infinitely more sense and what we have in I'm doing a project at the moment with someone called Matt Waring mentioned this one we're looking at, at HR but all your universities have you noticed there are a lot of people in HR yeah but there are thousands of them we've done freedom of information requests on every university in the country and asked how many HR people they have and how much they're paid and the data is scary. And when I was at Manchester University doing my PhD in 1979, the year Thatcher came in, there were no HR people because we didn't have even a personnel department in that. Manchester was much smaller than I'll agree. But anyway. Now Manchester has 147 people. It did in 2010-11. 147 people in their HR department. If you look at the Chartered Institute of Personnel Development suggested HR staffing ratios, how many HR people you need per 100 employees. And bear in mind, that's the professional body for HR officers. So they're going to plump up the numbers because it's jobs for, the, say jobs for the boys, it's jobs for the girls with HR, isn't it? Jobs for the girls. They think Manchester should have 43, not 147. And that extra 104 people cost Manchester £1.3 million a year. That's £1.3 million that could be used to reduce student fees or improve student education or pay for research projects. So that's really what, that's the hard numbers about what I'm talking about. It's, it's, a, it's, it's like a sort of you know, massive farming of university resources into the, into the pockets of a, of, of a fairly small but ever-growing Jamie Target, uh, ever-expanding HR department. Yeah, and this is really happening. And um, we need to kind of think seriously about the internal organisation of universities so that they can start devoting... Because this is the beast that we feed. We work hard to feed these people. Yeah. And, and, and that needs to be recognised as well because I think to a significant extent at the moment in a lot of universities, that's not recognised. That, that it's academic work that generates the income that pays for that. Yes, we need those people. Yes, you know, fantastic administrators worth their weight in gold. They are members of the, of, of the university community and in our plan they would be. But it's absolutely essential that, that they, they don't see us and the work we do and the work we should be doing as a source of like, a nice fat salary and we'll tell you what to do. Because if they're telling us what to do, we're not thinking what we should do with, with our surrounding communities and society. 
And on the money, I mean, this is... I really admire initiatives like Joel's. I wish I had the kind of youth and energy to really get into it. And I, uh, <laughs> It's really hard work, yeah. Uh, and it's fantastic. And, and I think it's, it becomes a great proving ground for what education... And it reminds people about what education should be. But I don't want the centre ground, the centre ground that gets all of the money. And even with student fees, you go bear in mind the way the funding model works, there's still a lot of public money going into universities. Because, because of the, the loan system and the default rates, etc., etc. Universities still expensively subsidised by government. I don't want that money to be no monopolised by institutions which are really about providing big salaries for managers and providing lots of privatised knowledge for private corporations. John? Thank you both very much. That was uh, thrilling, troubling, exciting. And I'm, I'm very taken by the, what seemed to me to be a, a, a set of contradictions around time, money, resources, and management. And I believe you about managerialism. Uh, I would. Um, and I think there's something interesting about what has happened to the institutional infrastructure uh, in terms of the reorganization of what were formerly understood as, if not practiced as, I have to say, support structures, because I don't think it was quite that genial in the past, uh, but into uh, managerialized structures of regulation and control. And I think that's true about HR departments, it's true about accountants. Uh, as you know, uh, uh, and it's true then about the recruitment of people whose career prospects are now about management, not about professional academic advancement. And I think all of that's true, and, and I think the juxtaposition of the two is then interesting because it does raise questions about, I mean, not just following the money, but re-diverting the money and about re-diverting time and resources that might be money, but not only money. And part of the problem about unlocking managerial infrastructures then and modes of calculation is about freeing time back up uh, for those things. And I do think it's lovely that you have that wonderful thing uh, out of Mondragon, especially, but not only, about how expensive it is to organise places. Mm. Because everybody used to tell us that democracy was very expensive and time-consuming. That can't be anywhere near as expensive and time-consuming as having more than 50% of the people be managers. It cannot be. Yes. Um, it is, uh, and, and so it's an empirical challenge to some of the claims made about how we organize our, how we might organize ourselves. But I want to have three little worries right, as endpoints. One is not the beast. Not the, please, not that metaphor. That's the Tea Party. Uh, and we should be wary of thinking of institutions that we want to support as beasts. The second is about the limits of communities and partnerships um, because the real difficult political question starts being about who gets to be members and I've not been following it recently but not all of John Lewis's employees got to be partners. Um, and the third is the endlessly things that should trouble us 
and should preoccupy us are questions about the politics and power of membership, of pedagogic relationships. So I don't, I want a better future, of course I do, but I want one that is not a romantic equivalent of the old nostalgic academic community. I don't want to go back, but nor do I want to be promised a nice, happy life. I want to have things that we ought to worry about together. Thank you both very much. I would entirely agree with, with everything on that, but I mean, all, all you can do ultimately is kind of like have some, I was going to say aspirations in, but we're not allowed to use that word anymore, are we? <laughs> have, we can have, it back. Have, have some dreams, yeah. you know, because I think it, it, it's, the, the important thing to recognise is, is the old system like, was broken and wasn't, wasn't good for poor kids, etc., etc., you know, but but at the same time, the, the, the fix that's been applied in the last 25 years is, is not a good one, you know, and that we should do better than this. But, but it's, it, it, it will always, of course, like, like you know, I mean, you, you go to Mondragon, it's, it's, it's constant vigilance around how they, how they practice and how they do things. And they have the most enormous fights, actually. And they have, they have a really, really big, thick rule book because when they have enormous fights, they go back to the rule books and, and they're kind of like, okay, let's go back to what we're really about and build it up again. And that's, and that's part of the kind of like, you know, re really good democratic organisations do have that kind of vibrancy and can, can see their way through conflict, absolutely. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take all four now and then we'll end up. Okay. In our, in because of the logistics of the microphone, we're just going to okay. make the microphone move this way. So it doesn't matter when you put up your hands. Let's move it that way. <laughs> okay, thanks. Sort of follows on a bit from John's point of what he was finishing on about sort of visions of the future and so on. And I don't disagree with what's been said at all, really, but I do worry a bit about the sense of the kind of hero heroism of, acad of academics that might that's perhaps slightly there in both presentations. And I don't. I don't disagree with the kind of potentials of us as academics of enacting social change, but I don't necessarily see that sharp division between manager, managers and academics in, in universities in my sort of everyday working life. And I think there's reasons for that because academics are doing management. You know, they're, they're co-opted or they willingly buy into all kinds of managerial tasks. You see that around the research assessment exercise um, ref that's going on at the moment. Um, and secondly, in terms of the kind of um, allegiances or commitments of academics, I think um, academics have variable ranges of commitments to their own institutions because of the nature of, of, of academic um, life and the kind of international and national circles in which people build networks. Um, and certainly the idea of local commitments and local engagement seems to be really undermined both by management structures and perhaps within academic life as well. Um, you know, there's a sort of hierarchy, I think, in impact. You were talking about the impact thing about local, national, global, and you see that in terms of research as well. So it seems to me that we need to reflect critically on our own implications in, in some of these things as well, rather than just thinking it's kind of management that's, that's, that's necessarily just shaping our actions in that kind of way. Okay. Um, mine, my comment also takes uh, upon John's comment about um, um, 
the power relations embedded in the pedagogical relationships. And it's a great uh, example of free education and critical pedagogy. Um, I just would like to warn you uh, from, from research experience in the field and also point you to some more directions or partnerships, and I would definitely be interested in participating in the, this laudable experiment. Um, so uh, the, the first point of warning is, as, as you are trying to in make this institutionalized uh, to gain more support, uh, obviously you'll find out that free education is free, but it's not cheap. Uh, uh, so, and try to identify lots of commonalities from the research within open and distance education. But also, you'll find out as you try to institutionalize through funding avenues, whether it's uh, GISC or the Hewlett Foundation or the Gates Foundation or whatever. Uh, you'll identify that the other sets of managers like instructional technologists and learning technologists and copyright uh, uh, people will come into and impose, in a sense, uh, structures about what it is a quality uh, uh, environment, what, uh, how is your curriculum should be formed, and, and, and then this, this sort of egalitarian structure might not be as such. Um, the other thing that is the political economic of the field, uh, of, of the field of free and open education and how you position them yourselves uh, against other experiments like Coursera, the MOOCs, the craze, you know, the whole sort of discursive and, and, and practical articulations of these experiments and how you compete against this in, in the political economic uh, terms or in terms of, a, of attention. Does Oxford, the name of Oxford, is a very, you know, it's a huge branding, um, you know, and, and PP as well. It's like what you said about linguistics, the, 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 the language of promotion. But then you might uh, also get, um, see yourselves competing with expectations, shaping expectations around credit and accreditation of those that participate. And that, that again, links to what um, John stole of my, all my comments about the politics of participation, the hierarchies of participation within those uh, learning in alternative and subaltern learning environments, if you like. Um, so anyway, there's tons of more comments to be discussed uh, within this and, and uh, I don't know, that's what I wanted to point to. My name's Julie Worrell, I'm from the University of East Anglia um, and um, I very much appreciate actually the point you made in terms of um, addressing the fact that we were getting a little bit polarised, I think, in, 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 in the presentation. Um, and I say that because um, I'm a postgraduate researcher at UBA. Um, I'm just in the final analysis and writing up and research, doing a, a small qualitative uh, study of the idea and experience of community inside higher education, just talking to um, academic colleagues. But I'm also uh, one of the new management, so I'm, I'm a part of, uh, if you like, um, uh, I'm in that sort of liminal space, if you like, in terms of academia. 
that uh, um, I created and delivered the beacon for public engagement that was based at UEA and I now work as the um, community university engagement manager um, and I too actually understand um, the uh, difficulties in terms of the context of new managerialism and the audit culture um, and I've always called the beacons for public engagement um, a, a governmental policy drive and my colleagues haven't necessarily been comfortable with the way that I've described it um, but it feels very familiar to some of the initiatives that I was involved with in the 19 years I spent in the public and voluntary sectors before coming to higher education so um, so it's complex um, and, uh, and in terms of um, unlocking if you like the sort of managerial infrastructure which I think is uh, uh, somebody was suggesting we need to do I think we need to uh, take a broader view in terms of unlocking the, the uh, infrastructure of what it means to be a research and teaching community um, and I'm very interested actually in terms of the notion of how the notion of community um, informs your thinking Rebecca particularly um, um, because I think I'm um, talking to certainly my participants is that uh, reflecting on the notion of community um, uh, has actually been always helping them to think about you know how we need to carry forward this, this shared endeavor and it is a shared endeavor and thinking about the role of, of all the actors if you like um, uh, in, in, in the institution and in the sector um, but also those outside because of course there are those outside who are part of the research community as well and who, who help us to create knowledge um, uh, which is not the sole domain of, of the institution so thank you a um, couple of things I think uh, first of all I thought the two presentations worked really well kind of together and as responses to each other and, and kind of triggered lots of, of thoughts really and um, I won't repeat what things that have already been said but um, the two things the first is maybe mostly for Joel and, and it has to do with um, you mentioned at the beginning of your talk you sort of presented yourself as a part of the precariat the kind of growing sort of um, and, I, and I can identify very much with that position as well um, and I was wondering if there's something about that position of, of the kind of post PhD precarious kind of situation of, of <laughs> of being in that position that on the one hand perhaps facilitates the kind of project that you're involved in because, I mean I don't know if the other people are also in a similar situation um, who are involved in setting it up, um, but if there's something about that kind of precariousness that also means a certain element of flexibility which means that you're able to sort of, as you said, um, give some sort of time to it. Um, then at the same time I'm wondering if that precarious position in a sort of structural sense, on the one hand facilitates it, but then also might kind of make the process of institutionalization maybe more complicated. And so I just wanted to, to, to ask you really to talk a maybe a little bit more about if you see that as, or the kinds of tensions to sort of arise from being in that position and maybe whether there's been particular difficulties associated with that when you try to kind of make your project more institutionalized in some sense. Um, the second point 
has to do with the, um, the role and status of students or participants, as you call them. Um, and I wonder if both of you maybe could talk a little bit more about uh, Rebecca, perhaps, how do you, you sort of mentioned, you know, this idea of, of students as being kind of transient partners in, in a cooperative university, but maybe talk a little bit more about how you conceptualize students within your model. Um, and Joel as well, maybe say a little bit more about, you know, what kind of role have your participants had, both in terms of developing the curriculum, but maybe also um, what kind of involvement have they had in developing or discussing the model that you're operating with. That's it. Can I have one more question to this and then I'll hand over to you. We've got five minutes to end up because we can come back to some questions later on. This question of scale as well. So if you have initiatives that are embedded in local communities all the time, if we accept that as a global knowledge economy going on, how do you scale up these initiatives and involve kind of global communities or international or transversely organized knowledge communities? in initiatives like these. Who wants to start? All right, then. If I say the ones on, on administrators, managers, and all of that first, I, I think, first of all, I think if, if you're... What, what kind of level are you at in, in your university? Me. Yeah. You're, res, you're a research assistant or fellow or whatever. Yeah. 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 I... I I find the further I've got up the university hierarchy, the more I see what goes on in the centre and the more I realise that actually people at the ground level don't realise how many people are employed kind of in universities where you end up actually quite literally wondering what they do. I mean, what do 147 people in HR in Manchester do? But they're not visible. I, I do it in a critical pedagogy sort of tradition, I, I teach first year accounting and I, 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 and I teach students this year they're the first students who've paid full fees nine, well, 8,250 a year at Roehampton and, and, and I've had them kind of examining the university's accounts, I taught them how to read the university's accounts so we've talked about their engagement with the university and they've accessed their engagement with the university through the accounting knowledge, you know and, and, and this is, they, they see the, the analysis, the breakdown of staffing figures in the accounts. And they sit there and they go, well, we never see these people. What do they do for us? So if you ask about what community means, you know, community means there are whole vast numbers of very expensively employed people in universities who students never see. And that worries me. Yeah, because what are they doing for those students? What's their point of, of engagement in the community? I can tell you that Mondragon, I have to look it up, but I think the figure for kind of non-teaching sort of and research stuff is about 10%. So 10% of the people employed are in those kind of administrative, facilitative roles. And most of them will be quite junior administrators. They're sort of, you know, um, people we used to call secretaries, but we don't anymore. Um, you're worried about the polarisation. Rather than think about it in terms of people's job titles or their roles or who's what, I kind of think what we really need to be thinking about is what, what people's contribution to the university is. And that's very poorly articulated. I've got a very nice colleague who's always on about what we should really be saying is not what people's job title is or what they say their job is, but actually what their contribution to the academic 
community is. And then that's for the academic community to decide whether or not that's useful and that's valuable. But it's for the students to decide as well. Is that useful? Is that, is that valuable? And in terms of the role of students, um, again, I'll just, just to finish, my, my first year accounting course, they, they kept money, I gave them a lot to read, and they complained about printing costs on campus. I said, well, how much are you being charged? Six pence a sheet. Said, That's outrageous. And they said, yeah, it's terrible. I said, well, what are you going to do about it? They said, well, we'll write a letter of complaint. I said, well, why don't we work out? And I was trying to teach them costing and pricing, which is one of the most boring things you can do in accounting, right? How much does something cost? So I thought, oh, this will grab their interest. So I ran a whole little project. I got, uh, we have seven different classes. I had a student from each class. We went off and interviewed the man in IT services who's responsible for running the printers across the campus. We got him to give us a co copy of the contract with Canon. We've got all the costing information. You know, the answer is it actually costs the university about half a pence a sheet to print, and we're charging students six pence. The students don't know, only, only my seven students know this at the moment. Tomorrow we've got a revision class out there, costing and pricing revision is actually to, to go through this and then I'm going to get them to write I've talked to the Vice-Chancellor about this already to make sure they get a good reception he, he agrees with me fortunately, you know, they're going to write a, a, a paper to the Student Senate and, and, and they, they want a price around three or four pence because they don't want students to be encouraged to print and waste resources but they think they should, they're poor people for the most part, my students, they think they should get a reasonable deal and they want the money hypothecated from, from the profit made on printing back into student bursaries so they can see where it's going. And I've squared all of this with the VC, so it's all sort of sorted, so he'll say yes to them. That, that, to me, is just a perfect example of a critical pedagogy where you're actually sort of teaching students valuable, useful stuff. You're really getting them engaged, and they're really actually becoming kind of a real part of the community. So it's not saying, well, we'll just listen to your views. It's like, well, okay, you do the sums, you know, with our help, and, and we'll change something. So, and, and I think we need to do more of that. Not made me very popular with the IT department. I'm going to answer these in a, in, a, in a way that I think... Yeah, of course, helps my argument flow rather than the order to which, uh, uh, which they were asked in. Um, it was, I can't remember your name. Ellie. I uh, was talking about the heroicism. I, I don't think of myself as heroic. I think of... No, 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 no. But I think it's an interesting word. And, uh, but at the same time, I've realised that, you know, you just need people to kind of get stuff done and really just drive things. And, uh, you know... Um, no, I know it was referring to that, but I thought it was an interesting word to, to comment on. I mean, referring to both of us. Um, and the lady next to you, Yotta, yeah, that was really interesting. I mean, so you're talking about the funding and, like, the loss of autonomy. I mean, my background's in, like, the politics of aid, you know, and uh, so I'm very conscious of, like, you know, how, uh, of the, the kind of, of that autonomy and stuff like that. And so we're really con conscious of that. And... Uh, We'll see, we'll see how it goes. You're talking about kind of competing against these big online things like Coursera and stuff like that. I, mean, I don't see ourselves competing against anyone, perhaps apart from competition itself. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing about Coursera, you say, oh, 20,000 people on, you know, enrolled in one course, what kind of learning experience is that? 
but I, I understand that they actually you, you kind of get these discussion groups that are kind of evolving locally, you know, so online and you know actually people meeting. So that's that's not a bad thing. Um, dangers of expectations, yeah. I mean, we're just we're conscious of these things, and uh, free education isn't cheap. I mean, there there are major obstacles to, to this, and we're conscious of them, and we'll see. And uh, I'm going to say something in a second that, that links to that. Academic precaria facilitating this, am I more flexible? I don't know, L last time was just a nightmare. I was teaching over 100 students, three modules, plus tutorial teaching in Oxford. I was writing three lectures a week. It was ridiculous. So, um, I'm not yeah, sure. No, I wasn't suggesting that there was a... No, no, I know, but I mean, we're all, <laughs> I mean, we're all hugely overworked, you know. Um, but I do recognise also that flexibility of my time. And I think that's the thing that I have, a bit, a bit more flexibility, you know, which means I have to stay up till 2 o'clock in the morning, but, you know... Uh, um, uh, particip participation, uh, position of participants. We are really, 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 really keen to, as this grows to get to break that boundary again, not just within the learning experience, but actually get participants into organising positions. You know, and that's really we're really, really motivated by that. It's it's not happened. Well, it's actually there's one or two that could be actually joining us. So we ha we're really, really focused on that. Uh, scaling up, and, uh, scale and scaling up. Uh, I mentioned at the start, um, you know, my goal this summer to set up a free education network. My vision for that is 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 is, is a net, as a network, being the hub for for the, this domestic for the UK for all everyone involved in that, but then linking it to uh, to internationally. So for me, it's you know, it's definitely serving our community, but we're linking up nationally, we're linking up regionally, and then hopefully internationally as well. Um, and then uh, I wanted to say a few final, final words. I wanted to make one thing clear is that there seems to be, we kind of thought there was a kind of dichotomy between us with like Rebecca working within and then me working without. But actually, um, there's still, I think there's so much more in common and it's service that for me underlines what we're doing uh, and resistance and, and the desire to change. But also, we're still in universities. I still work in universities. All we, our facilitators have been graduate students primarily. Everyone's working in the university. So, I don't see, you know, I see that dichotomy so much. I wanted to say one thing to Helen, which is perhaps a more intelligent response to you, which you're talking about emotional stability and confidence for young people to take the journey that, you know, give themselves confidence. And actually, emotional stability and confidence comes with understanding and, and being able to control or have some control over your circumstances. And I think when what we've been doing about understanding the broader structures in which we, you know, that structure our society and constrain and shape our lives, People and participants have said that they feel more empowered and they feel more confident. So and there's another link there. Finally, um, a gentleman in the corner over there was talking about the politics and power of membership and pedagogy and about, you know, oh no, was it about constant vigilance and an unending process? And I think, are oh, you talking about constant vigilance? Oh, sorry, you were responding to him. But anyway, constant vigilance and an unending process. And I think, you know, what is democracy? It's just an unending process. And I'm interested in you know, inv getting involved in these processes and we don't know where they go we just, you know, but at the same time we all go back to that rule book that guides us with the principles that drive the process um, for PPE overall, this project, you know it could fail, but then is that a failure? I don't think it is, I think it's already shown something and uh, it's just part of that process so I just want to be part of the process Okay that note, <coughs> it's not finished yet I have two announcements to make, so that's why I can't speak. Otherwise, I never get to the announcement. Uh, 
This is, but I think we'll continue this in the other. I mean, this is fundamentally not about universities only. It's about international public knowledge and knowledge production and sharing, which will come later. But the two very practical things are, one, if you haven't signed in yet, can you sign in in the form that's just on the corner uh, <coughs> here? And secondly, I mean, I can smell the sandwich. So <laughs> 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 no, I don't know if that's a good sign. <laughs> but uh, so some of them are over there, yeah? So, no, but that is all the lunch as well. So you could lunch as over there. But let's thank Rebecca and Joel for excellent start of this day, with raising lots of issues on both organizational side as well as working uh, <coughs> pedagogically, etc. So thanks very much. Thank